In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And how are you doing this morning, Helen? I'm doing very well, Liz. It's, it's you know, really, here we are back. Schools have gone back. Work's gone back. We're now back into the run-up to summer. Yeah, we're back into going through the old clothes and porridge and we're back to the normal again, picking up. And you know, when we came to think what we're going to chat about today, we went back to our tried and tested and looked at, well, what happened in this day in history? And uh, this episode goes out on the 11th of January. And when we looked up our list, this was the date that Alexander Bain died. And I'm sure everybody out there is going, who's Alexander Bain? Yeah, a name totally obscure. Now, hardly anybody, I doubt, unless you were a physicist, has probably ever heard of Alexander Bain. And yet he's one of those forgotten inventors in Scotland that played such an important part in our daily life today by his contribution to the world, but has largely been forgotten. Alexander Bain was the inventor of the electric clock. Now, that's not one that you plug into your socket in your house. An electric clock was a major invention because what it was was a clock where this pendulum swung backwards and forwards because of electric current switching on and off a magnetic force. And so when you had this swing of the pendulum, he was able, now don't ask me how you're able to do it, the physics that's involved in that I couldn't explain to you, but what he was able to do was to synchronise other clocks. Started off synchronising one in Edinburgh with the one in Glasgow, and then all over the world, international clocks were synchronised in the same way. And along the way, he also just happened to invent the fax machine as well. So a major contribution to the telegraph industry. And of course, that would go on and develop into the communications that we've got today. So this started us off thinking about the number of simple everyday things that we take for granted now, but that owe their origins to Scots inventors of the past. Yes, I mean, I think the Alexander Bain thing is fantastic. And when you put it like that, Liz, that international time, everything, that is huge. The beginnings of something absolutely huge. 
So if we go back, Liz, in time before Alexander Bain and think about, you know, what were Scots involved in? And we were a very agricultural economy right right through. So if we look at the agrarian revolution of the 18th century, we, we were developing a worldwide reputation for various things. But the main thing, Liz, that's, that, that we're very familiar with is the plough, especially the Barrowman plough. And John Barrowman lived in our village in Salon, and he worked at the Smithy just down the road in Bridge Street. And he developed this plough, which it was one of the local farmers came to him and said, look, can you give me something? Can you devise something that allows me to turn the soil right over so that I can do it in one one motion rather than go back in time? It will save time. It will save labour. And the Barrowman plough was invented. And that proved very successful and local farmers around five began to use it. And it's attracted the attention of a nurseryman. And guess where, Liz? In Stirling. John Drummond, the nurseryman in Stirling, was so impressed with the Barrowman plough that he took it down to the Crystal Palace in 1851 to the Great Exhibition. And then it just took off internationally. And in fact, an example of the plough can be found in the museum in Buenos Aires in Argentina. There's also a couple in New Zealand. So they're all over. And there's one here in Salon. Yeah, just round the corner from me. I was going to say that from Buenos Aires to Salon, just round my corner. Yeah, It's amazing, (laughs) isn't it? Something that Salon can be proud of. But imagine being exhibited at the Crystal Palace exhibition. And that's just an example, you know, of a, a local resident from a small village in Fife inventing something that went on to to revolutionise agriculture, turning the soil right over. And he was just one of many. Perhaps the best known of these agricultural inventors was a man called Andrew Meikle. He was born earlier. He was the 18th century. He was working around the middle of the 18th century. And he invented the threshing machine. Now, that may not sound like much, but this was a machine that was able to take out the outer husks from the grains of wheat. So, I mean, it was a case of try, try, try again, you know, to look at something and to see why it was failing, to develop it and whatever. And what he did was to turn to the linen industry where they were taking the fibres from the flax plants and he did a fixed drum with beaters that beat the grain rather than rubbing it, which is what they'd been doing in the past. Now, threshing at that time was a very laborious process. It was done by hand. They they were basically beating it or flailing it. And so it occupied about a quarter of agricultural labour. So when Andrew Meikle came up with his threshing machine that actually worked, it was revolutionary. And there's so many examples of this in agriculture. So what was it? about the Scots that was making them so successful. I think a huge figure for me, in 1800, you know, the time that many of these inventors were working, there were just two million people in Scotland, two million people. And yet we have this reputation across the world for our invention. So what was it about the Scots? Well, I think, I think, you know, I, I just love the idea of of Andrew Meikle kind of looking up at the sails of the windmill on a on a windy day and say, "Oh, this is an awful job to try and get them down." So he actually invented something that helped him un you know, furl the sails of the windmill. So I think it was a practical use. We weren't looking for you know to change the world with great new 
innovations. We were just trying to help ourselves to do things in a more efficient way. So it was a much more practical look at things. Yep. And where we had the practical skills, we'll see as we look at these inventors that there's various themes running through it. You know, people have the ideas, they can come up with the ideas, but very often they didn't have the business acumen. And so many of these great inventions, the people have fallen into obscurity. But worse than that, they died in poverty. I mean, Mikkel himself, he had to have a fundraised subscription for his relief because he didn't make any money out of the major inventions that he was coming up with. Another thing that really strikes me as well is that we have great reputation for engineering, for inventing through engineering, but that came about in the 1800s because of our previous strength in medicine. If you think about it, you know, Scotland led the world in the 18th century for the quality of the teaching of its physicians, its doctors. And that came about because of the two great dynasties of medical teachers, one at Glasgow University and then one at Edinburgh University. And they treated the body as a system. So they would observe, they would look at the working parts and try to work out how these parts all fitted together. And that's exactly what the engineers did. Well, you know, it's funny, Liz, because, you know, as you know, my, my, my husband died you know, quite a number of years ago of cancer. But his own specialism in business was looking at rot in buildings, dry rot. So I remember being in the doctor surgery, the consultant surgery with, with Graham, while the two of them were discussing how cancer goes through the body is exactly the same way as rot spreads through a building. So this still goes on this idea of taking the body as a machine or as a as a building. And I was watching the Christmas lectures recently on television by Jonathan Van Tam, who is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, and he was explaining about the the pandemic. And one of the experts that he brought on was a mechanical engineer who specialises in using her engineering knowledge and skills in developing and understanding the virus. So engineering and medicine still go hand in hand. And of course, we may have had the strengths in medicine, but what comes fundamentally at the heart of it all was the quality of education in the 18th century in Scotland, because following on from the Reformation, if you were going to read your Bible, you needed to be able to read. And so there was a school in every parish. And in Scotland, we had very high levels of literacy, reading and writing, which is why Scots did so well as they travelled across the world. But also we had very high quality teaching of mathematics. So the medicine, the engineering and the mathematics all went hand in hand to give the basic grounding that these engineers needed to go on and make these greatest inventions. And so Scots were absolutely at the heart of the Industrial Revolution that followed on from the Agrarian Revolution. And what name comes to mind when you think of the Industrial Revolution? Oh, yes, James Watt. James Watt from Greenock. Yep, cited as the most useful man who ever lived. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's really interesting because one of his friends was John Anderson, who was a professor at Glasgow University, but who set his heart on developing a place for useful learning. And that was where the Anderson Institute and then Strathclyde University evolved from. So a useful man and his friend who developed a place of useful learning. 
Yeah, and we've talked about the quality of the Scots education, but another theme that I'm struck by as we look at all these inventors is the number who suffered poor health, particularly poor health when they were a child. And James Watt is no exception. He didn't attend school regularly because he was sickly and he spent much of his time in his father's workshop. So he, he just you know developed the practical and inquiring side of his mind. And when he was 19 years old, he went off to London, which was a path that many of them took again. And he trained as a scientific instrument maker and poor health led him back to Glasgow where he got a job at Glasgow University and his skills were really in great demand making and repairing instruments. But it's interesting Liz why he got a job at Glasgow University because when he came back to Glasgow as a fully trained fully served apprentice he could he was not able to work in Glasgow because of I suppose you'd call it sort of union activities. He had not done his apprenticeship in Glasgow, therefore was not qualified to work in Glasgow. And it goes back to his friend John Anderson, who said, well, I'll get you a job with Glasgow University because you're so good, we don't want to lose you. And so that's why he went in to Glasgow University and set up his practice. Yep. And one day he was called in and he said, look, we're having problems with this model. It's not working properly. It's a model of the new common steam engine. Can you fix it? And what he did was he scratched his head and he thought, oh, oh dear, I must get some fresh air. And he wandered out and he was walking across Glasgow Green, a big open space, on a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning. And he suddenly had what we call his eureka moment when he decided that he knew exactly what should be done. But he had a very lucky escape, Liz, because in those days, in the 18th century, the what I call the church police would be wandering around on a Sunday. And if you were out and about when you should be in church, you stood the chance of being arrested. So he managed to avoid being arrested when he came up with his eureka moment. Yeah, but he couldn't write it up until the Monday morning. He had That's to keep right. it and not forget it overnight like I do. <laughs> keep that great idea going. But what was also really helpful for James Watt was that he was able to meet up with a, an entrepreneurial partner, in his case, a Birmingham entrepreneur called Matthew Bolton, and where Watt had the ideas Bolton had the business acumen. So in 1776, Bolton stated, I sell here, sir, what all the world desires to have, power. And so, you know, he had the pragmatic, level-headed approach, whereas Watt was a bit highly strung, he kept on panicking. And between the two of them, Watt was able to retire a wealthy man and probably more than any other a name that stands out in history, outstanding engineer, a scientist, an inventor. His name goes on. He was the first one to coin the phrase horsepower when he was trying to explain what his steam machine could do. And also the International Unit of Power is named after him, the Watt. So it doesn't come much better than that. And I just think that is so clever to help people understand what he was doing, what his machine would do, was to relate it to what a horse could do, because people were totally knew exactly what was meant, what a horse could do in, you know, how, how many, what loadage, what weight, what distance a horse could walk. So by saying this is equivalent to, you know, two horsepower, eight horsepower, it really let people understand it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that strikes me about these inventors is that they're famous for something, in his case, adapting the 
the steam power, but um, they also came up with so many other things that we don't associate with them. Like, for example, did you know that James Watt also invented a pipe organ, which he used to entertain his friends? And he also invented a machine for copying letters, a photocopier. Now, we never associate that with, with um, James Watt. No, especially under time, the 18th, 18th century. But I think this is it. These people, their minds were such that, okay, they'd got one thing and it was a success. Oh, but my mind's still going on to something else. Where would, where would we be without something to copy our letters? You know, how, many, how often are you told to ask to scan something in and send it off on your computer to somebody else elsewhere in the world? It's just the start of something huge. Yeah, they, they made the inventions that others went on to develop further. And in the case of steam power, it's probably you know the most important invention because it would transform so many things. When you think about transport, James Watt himself actually came up with the idea of using steam power for transportation on a ship or, or, or some kind of vehicle on land. But he thought, wow, no, that's far too dangerous. All this um, fire and steam and everything, much too dangerous to handle. So he didn't develop it, but others came at the back of him, like William Symington who was the Scottish engineer born in the Lead Hills, and that's where the mines were. And his potential was spotted. He was sent to study at the University of of Edinburgh. And he came up with the the ability to generate steam power for ships. So the, 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 the famous, for the first steamboat, was the Charlotte Dundas. Yes, and it was interesting because he came from a mining community and the boat Charlotte Dundas was was named after his sponsor and sort of owner, if you like, of the of the property, named after his daughter, which was the common practice for mine owners to to name their coal mines after the 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 owner, the sponsor, the landowner. So it was, you know, another tradition being carried on. Yeah, and the Charlotte Dundas has gone down in history. It was an adaptation of the Watt steam engine, which he linked to a paddle wheel, and that turned the wheel. And in 1802, it was used for the first time to pull barges along the Forth and Clyde Canal in Scotland. So they thought that it would transform things. But again, he died disappointed because they thought that this paddle would cause eddies and that could damage the canal banks. So although he came up with a great idea, he didn't actually make his fortune out of it because it was abandoned as thought to be too risky. But it's interesting that these inventors, they, they came up against that brick wall where the, the powers that be, the authorities, just didn't have the vision, couldn't look beyond the now, the here and now, into the future, the way the inventors were. And that's exactly the same for Henry Bell, which somebody, some people may associate his name with the name The Comet, which was the first commercial use of a, a passenger steamboat service. And again, not a good student. His mind was dreaming all the time. In fact, a contemporary said of him, his mind was a chaos of extraordinary projects, the most of which, from his want of accurate scientific calculation, he never could carry into practice. Yeah, I, I love that. And I can see the vision, you know, the vision of his mind, you know, just, you know, crashing around there, just trying to you know, pick up anything and everything he could and saying, well, it doesn't matter. I, I, can't, I won't do the calculations, but I know what I want. Yeah, he was way ahead of his time, but he tried to take it to the Admiralty. Lord Melville was um, Admiral of the Navy at that time, and he dismissed it. You know, said there's, there was nothing in it. But one man didn't, and his name was Admiral Horatio Nelson. 
And in 1803, he said, My lords, if you don't adopt Mr. Bell's scheme, other nations will, and in the end vex every vein of this empire. It will succeed, and you should encourage Mr. Bell. Yeah, I think that that's amazing. And of course, this rejection by everybody else only spurred him on. You know, he just he just kept going, especially when he saw things were beginning to happen in the across the Atlantic in the United States. You know, he thought, right, I'm going to do something. But interestingly enough, he almost retired. He went to Helensboro, still on the River Clyde, and he set up a hotel with his wife just, you know, so that he had this going. But he then did a very good marketing exercise, Liz, didn't he? He commissioned the ship shipbuilders just up the Clyde at Port Glasgow to build a paddle steamer. And he mortgaged his house and his business in order to afford this. But the idea was to bring guests from Glasgow down to his hotel at Helensborough. And with his steam engine, this paddle steamer dramatically cut the time. So it became a good day out going doing the water, as we've talked about before. Yeah, and there's another theme developing as well. Behind every man, there's a strong woman. And I think Mr. Bell's wife, Mrs. Bell, was a very strong woman. She was the business side and she ran this hotel or inn, which was attached to the local public baths. And so, you know, she kept a good business going while he was out inventing and coming up with his mad ideas. But she stood behind him when he mortgaged the house and the business. But again, an inventor who ended his days in poverty. He didn't patent his designs, and so everyone was ripping him off mercilessly. And, uh, you know, he just didn't make the financial gain out of it. And then there was a terrible accident where the second paddle steamer, there was a successor to the comet, and it sank. And the report that came out of it said that there was reprehensible neglect, and there was quite a, a considerable loss of life. The passengers were all partying on board, dancing on the, the, the decks and whatever. And so he really did live a sad life after that and um, died in poverty. Yeah, and it's and it's you know it's really it's really sad when that happens. It just again it just shows that um, the authorities just didn't have the vision. They they couldn't pick him up after that tragedy and say, "We'll we'll take you through because you have a very good thing going there." Yep. On land, it was George Stevenson who set up the first modern railway. He's not Scottish, but his dad, his, his paternal grandfather was, so we'll claim him as well. But <laughs> We're going to claim him, Liz. We'll claim him anyway. <laughs> but certainly John Dunlop. Do you know what John Dunlop did? Oh, yes. Dunlop tyres, yes. But he had a very good reason for, for coming up with the, you know, the pneumatic tyre, the, the, the blow-up tyre. It was his son who sort of he was cycling to school, talked about all children going to school. His son, nine-year-old, cycling to school, came home every day and said, Dad, I've got a really sore bottom. That's bumping along these cobbles on these hard tyres is really hurting me. So being a, being a very caring father, his dad set about and came up with something that gave it a much smoother ride to school. Yeah, he filled up the tyres with air and made them pneumatic ones. And when he compared it with the traditional solid rubber tyres, it wasn't only more comfortable, but it was a lot faster too. And it was so fast, in fact, that his son started to win cycle races. And so his dad got the, the best cycle champion of the day to ride at a famous um, cycle race at Queen's College in Belfast, because that's where the dad was working as a vet, not as an inventor, but a veterinary surgeon. And it, he won. And in the audience was 
um, the father of one of the boys who was beaten, and he was a Dublin businessman. And again, he had the fortune that he went into partnership and they established the Dunlop Rubber Company. It just shows how one man's success was another man's failure. Because 43 years earlier, a man called Robert W. Thompson, known as Scotland's forgotten engineer, he had invented exactly the same tyre. But it was before bicycles were fashionable. And so there was no public demand for it. And his invention was forgotten. So Dunlop got his name in lights and the world has honoured him ever since. And poor old Robert W. Thompson died in obscurity. It's so strange. And if you remember, Liz, coming back to our our home area in Dunfermline, it was, you know, the name Dunlop was still on the side of one of the, the mills right up until really just a few years ago when one of the the old textile mills in Dunfermline was taken over by Dunlop to do the, is it the canvas that went inside the motor car tyres at one point? Yeah, and again, if you think of your name being familiar, there's none more familiar than John McAdam, because John McAdam, it was the end of the 18th century. The roads across Scotland were scarce. They were bad, unreliable in poor weather. It was said that in wet weather, horses sink to their bellies and carts to their axles. And John McAdam came up with a simple idea of building a road, a sturdy road, using crushed stones and gravel. And as the wagon wheels and the horses' hoofs rolled over it, it actually compacted it and made it firmer and stronger. And then along came in the future, building on the development, somebody else came and improved it. And that was by adding tar. So we got tar macadam roads, or tarmac for short. Yeah. And if you if you look at it, well, we still have all this bottoming going on for any road building or path building or anything that's laying it down. And it's still the crushed stones and the pebbles. And I just love looking at the tar as it's going on to lay. And you just see exactly as it was almost at the end of the 18th century, tar macadam. And then as we move from transportation to communication, one of them, the, a couple of the most famous names, the Scottish inventors, Alexander Graham Bell, born in Edinburgh in 1847. But he was just simply Sandy Bell. One of the stories I like most about him was that when he was 11 years old, his father asked him, what do you want for your birthday, son? And he said, a middle name. And his uncle Graham was staying with him at the time. And so he became Alexander Graham Bell. I think that's that's a lovely story, Liz. And and he's he's always known as that. He must have decided he was keeping that name and just you would not be known as as you say Sandy Bell or Alexander Bell. He would be known by his full name, his birthday present middle name. But but the interesting thing about Alexander Graham Bell and how he came about it was really necessity was the mother of invention in his case, because his mother was almost deaf. And his father taught elocution to the deaf. And his father had developed a, a, a system of what he called visible speech, which was lip reading to, uh, to us. And you, he, Alexander Graham Bell decided that he was going to try to dedicate his life to improving communications for the, the deaf community. And so much so that when he, he married, he married a student who was also deaf. So he was continuing this Bringing, bringing up some work to help the communications in the deaf community. But again, following on the theme, Liz, illness ran in the 
in the family. His family had a kind of a lung weakness, pulmonary weakness, and two of his brothers had died of TB. So the family decided in 1870 that they would seek a better climatic conditions for them, and they headed off to Canada and then moved to Boston. And that was where he continued his work in you know transmitting the human voice over wires. Yeah, very often, you know, with visitors that come from America or Canada, they claim Alexander Graham Bell is their own. And we say, no, he's not. He was born <laughs> he was born in Edinburgh. He's ours. But he did come up with the, the receiver that could turn electricity into sound. And from that we had the first phone call. But he had other ideas as well. I don't know if many people know that he, he was able to invent flying machines. In fact, the first first powered machine flown in Canada was an invention of Bell. And he also worked on hydrofoils and he was a founding member of of the National Geographical Society, so a major force in inventing, as was another son of Scotland, John Logie Beard. Yes, and of course, in Scotland, we know him and that, that name as the inventor of television, but he didn't, what didn't come smoothly to him. I imagine John Logie Beard a bit like, what is it, is it Augustus Potts in yeah, Chitty Chitty yeah, Bang Bang? Yes. You know, that, that's how I see him. You're just always coming up with ideas and you know, things working, things don't work. He, in the early days, he rigged up a telephone exchange to connect his bedroom with those of his friends across the street. Now, I'm sure it wasn't what I used to do was the tin can and the piece of <laughs> string. I'm sure his was a little bit more sophisticated than that. But you know, he, he knew he wanted tra- to transmit you know, sound and then vision came later. Yeah, he was at the turn of the 20th century and he was a new concept, a professional inventor. I think it's this idea of all this happen chance, you know, that with success comes so many failures. And um, He tried to produce synthetic diamonds and one of his earliest successes was what was called an all-season sock, a sock that could keep your feet healthy in all seasons. And he used the profits from this to emigrate to the healthier climate of the Caribbean and then on to the USA, just like Graham Bell before him. But, you know, one of them was spectacular failures he tried to open a jam factory that the jam factory founded because um, there was an army of ants that carried away all his sugar. <laughs> so try, try, try again. It's so visual. You can you can imagine that, can't you? This little army of ants marching into his factory and then just grain by grain taking the sugar out of it. I love it. Yeah, but he did manage to get his first flickering picture, so he will forever be associated um, with television and as one of the world's greatest inventors. But the BBC didn't actually pick up on his invention. They used the rival Marconi, but it's still John Logie Baird that's credited with having the vision, having with the ideas. And likewise, you know, other inventions that we're familiar with, but perhaps don't know the background to, Radar was Robert Watson Watt, you know, looking, he worked in the meteorological office looking at ways to track thunderstorms by using the radio signals given off by lightning. And he used that to develop direction finding systems that were used to against the threat of the German U-boats and then using them to locate aircraft at long distances. So radar comes down to a Scott born in Brechin. Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, all the inventions, and this one especially, just show it was somebody working to get a kind of a practical method to help them in their own work that developed something which was just groundbreaking and been beneficial throughout the whole world. You know, it's something 
we use expressions going in under the radar. You know, the radar is part of our everyday language nowadays. Yep, and none more so than wireless technology. Think of our communications nowadays. Alexander Muirhead, born in East Lothian, a childhood accent left him deaf in one year. So again, adversity in, in childhood. But he went on to have an outstanding academic career. He pioneered the electrocardiogram, the ECG, that we depend on so much nowadays. And he his patent was bought out again by Marconi. So, you know, this the contribution to wireless technology. Yeah, and I I think that he, unlike what some of the others, he was very meticulous, and he, you know, his the instruments and things that he was developing were described as being beautifully designed and constructed. You know, he he had a much greater order than some of the inventors we've talked about. And when we talk about design and beauty, it's not just the high tech. You know, Duncan Cameron was credited with inventing the Waverley pen nib. Now he was um he was he was working in his family owned printing and stationery firm in 1850, and in those days people were either writing with a goose feather or one of those pointy scratchy steel nibs that you dipped into the ink, and they had a tendency to dig into the paper and splash the ink and blots all over your your page. I remember that well, Liz. You know, Not school, quite 1850. Helen. No, but, no, but, we, but we learned to write with a a, a pen and nib and the inkwell in the desk, and it did scratch and spray ink everywhere. And of course, you couldn't hand in any work if it had any ink blots on it. So, and no delete buttons in those days. It was a case of write it out again. So I like Duncan Cameron. (laughs) Yeah, beautiful, beautifully designed pens that had an upturned tip on them so that the ink went really smoothly over the paper. And he named it after good old Sir Walter Scott's Waverley novels. And he had excellent advertising. He sold it under the advertising slogan, they came as a boon and a blessing to men, the Pickwick, the Owl and the Waverley pen. I love that. That's so, so good. And of course, remained in production until 1964, a full hundred years of um, you know, producing this um, Waverley pen nib. Yeah, and again, Scott's credited with inventing adhesive postage stamps, again, communication. We take them for granted. The problem was they were beginning to develop a a postal service because um, it was very fragmented and chaotic. So they were trying to pull it together and improve the speed. And a great champion of this was a man called James Chalmers from Dundee, Dundonian. And uh, he came up with the idea that um, if you try, if you had this stamp that you could put on by adhesive onto a package, at the other end, it would be franked, it would be stamped with the town stamp. And that way you could um, make a charge for the postage. But a frequent problem with all these inventors, there was somebody there to pinch their ideas. And a man called Rowland Hill pinched his and got all the credit. He got the kudos associated with it. He became very wealthy, he got a knighthood, he got all the kudos and poor old, poor old James was left in Dundee in obscurity and the burghers of Dundee weren't impressed at all. They thought this is his idea, he's not getting the credit. So they gave him a silver claret jug and a salver and a purse of 50 sovereigns. But, you know, I think that, again, it's such a visual image. I can see the the people in Dundee, you know, the the guildsmen, the tradesmen would gather at the Howff, which was the the cemetery where James Chalmers is is buried. And, you know, I can just see them ranting and raving how this was shocking. And then, but on on his gravestone, 
they they put very clearly this was I think it was his father his son who did this. He worked tirelessly to get his father recognized. But on his gravestone it says very clearly, originator of the adhesive postal stamp, which saved the penny postage scheme of eighteen forty from collapse, rendering it an unqualified success, and which has been adopted throughout the postal systems of the world. The originator is James Chalmers. So we've had communications, we've had transport, but just think of the huge number of things that are in everyday use, their names suggesting their inventor, none more so than the Macintosh, the famous raincoat that was named after Charles Macintosh, not Charles Rennie Macintosh or even Charles Rainey Macintosh, but Charles <laughs> Macintosh, born in Glasgow in 1766, an icon of British fashion. And of course, his his invention, the Macintosh, the waterproof, grew out again of trying to find a way to use a waste product, the the product which was the waste product of the distillation of coal tar. So it was again not something that he set out to do, but he thought, oh, we have to find a use for this, and he found it. It bonded very well with rubber, natural rubber, and he made a sandwich, and hence the Macintosh, the real waterproof was born. Yeah, but still going strong, still the same technique, largely unchanged. 200 years later in Cumbernauld, you've got the factory, they bring in the cotton cotton material from Japan now, but they still make it together like the sandwich with the rubber in between. But they have actually improved it because we now have vulcanised leather. So in, in Charles Macintosh's day, it was a bit subject to the weather. It was very stiff in winter and it went a bit runny in summer. Nowadays, they've overcome those teething problems. <laughs> That's right. And of course, there's another inventor from not too far away from us here is James Dewar, who was born in Kincardine, just down on the River Forth in 1842. And something that we just take for granted now, the vacuum flask, the thermos flask, he he invented that because he wanted to have something that you could have hot drinks with or cold drinks. He was working on the liquefaction, freezing of gases, another chemist, and he wanted to keep these gases very, very cold. So he needed to stop the transmission of heat, which if you're a scientist, it's conduction, convection and radiation. So he made a bottle within a bottle so that there was a vacuum to stop the, the heat going out. There were no molecules to carry the heat. And he used a highly reflective material so he would stop the heat transfer by radiation. So it was known as the Dewar flask, but again, that fatal error, he didn't patent it. And so the idea was taken up commercially by Thermos, a German company. They made the billions out of it and he didn't earn a penny. Yes, it, it, it's you know, surprising, but where would we be without it? Again, necessity was the mother of invention. He needed something to keep the gases cold and he found what became known as the Dewar flask. Very clever. Other ideas, we're all used to going to the hole in the wall, the ATM machine, right? And we have our PIN technology, our PIN number, to be able to get them the money out. That was two, Sco- two Scots, John Adrian Shepherd Barron. He designed the ATM machine, but his ATM machine was capable of accepting checks. So you needed to take a check which was impregnated with a radioactive compound and that got your money out. So that was actually the first cash machine. Um, And he came up with this idea when he was lying in the bath and he had just turned up at the bank 
after closing time one day and found that he couldn't get in to withdraw the money. So he thought, how can I get over this problem and have money available? And he thought, well, think about chocolate vending machines. You just go up and you get your chocolate out the machine. Why can't I get my money out of a hole in the wall? And so I love the idea that he pitched the idea to the head of Barclays Bank over a pink gin. Says it all. I think it does. Again, a visual image comes into the mind. But there were other, again, other cash dispenser systems were beginning to emerge. So he he doesn't really always get the, the credit for it, does he, Liz? You know, there was other people who then went into the PIN number, the personal identification number, and developed that. And James Goodfellow, he developed the PIN technology, which worked very well with the ATM and made it the smooth operation that we know today. Yeah, but he wasn't satisfied. I mean, in a radio interview with the BBC, I mean, he was given an OBE in 2006 and he was inducted into the Scottish Engineering Hall of Fame in 2016. But he still spoke of his regret that his invention hadn't got wider recognition because it was an invention that had changed the world and yet wider recognition had eluded him. I invented an automated system with an encrypted card and a PIN number, and that's one that's used around the world today. So perhaps we should be calling it, instead of a PIN number, a good fellow number. <laughs> yes. So, but And so it goes on, Liz. Inventions carry on today. So, But I think, really, we perhaps might have to leave them for another day or maybe just give a taster. No, I think just leaving it. I mean, there's, there's Stephen Salter that, invo- in, that developed the... The first robot, Freddy the Robot, with artificial intelligence, that it had a tactile manipulator. We've got so many inventions going on in medicine, and we've got inventions going on, particularly in Scotland at the moment, into renewable energy and different ways of harnessing the power of renewable energy. But I think what's really different and what I'd like to end on is the fact that in Scotland today, the happen chance has been taken out of it. The fact that you needed to be lucky enough to get to find a business partner who had the acumen to take your idea forward, to patent it, to get you the financial benefit from it. Nowadays, in every university in Edinburgh, uh, sorry, in every university in Scotland, and we've got universities that lead the world, they're all conducting their research, but they all have what are called incubator units. So there are professionals in these units that take the ideas and they develop the patents, they develop the marketing and the business side of it so that the inventors are free to just let their imaginations run wild and Scotland still making major contributions to technology around the world. So, words of the week, Helen. Have we got time to sneak yes. them in tonight? I was just thinking, you know, we're, 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 I'm getting carried away with all this Scottish invention and all the rest of it. And I think, you know, if I was living in any other country in the world, we'd be able to make the same claims, you know. And is it just that we Scots have got a good conceit to ourselves? I think it's one we've perhaps used before. But we think, here's to us, what's like us damn few and they're all deed. That's right. And the other, the other little phrase that I've got, we've, we've talked about these inventors who just... They didn't stop. They they were they hit walls. They were knocked back, but they didn't stop. So failing means that you're playing. If you're failing, you're playing. So that's the good thing too. You've got to be in it to win exactly. it. Absolutely, so, that's our motto for the new year, yes. Helen. In it to <laughs> win it. it. If you're playing, <laughs> if you're failing, you're playing. Well, we've certainly got a share got of that. A share, yes. <laughs> so Liz, thanks again, and we'll meet again very soon. We will do. Bye for now. Bye for now. 
And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the moo from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.